0: Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of stories in common and share structure in common. John's is a gospel that is unique and distinct from the other three. His opening comments are compelling. Just the words, in the beginning. It it just throws us back to the, the first words of Genesis. In the beginning. It's fascinating. He's going to say something about the beginning of all things. Genesis. In the beginning. God created. And we go through the creation process. And it's almost like the great. Speech by Abraham Lincoln when he said four score and seven years ago, there's something powerful and compelling about those words. So somebody might start off their speech with those words and then go in an entirely different direction. But they've got you with the opening line. That's what John does. He has you with this opening line. In the beginning was the Word. and The Word was with God and the Word was God. And in this gospel, he declares Jesus to be God, and he tells us that Christ's ministry here on earth was basically that of light penetrating darkness. It says in the 14th verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the Incarnation full of grace and truth, we beheld His glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father. Then he quickly mentions the superiority of the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of Moses in the 16th verse. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, as we proceed through this chapter, you'll notice this morning that there are four consecutive days from which John takes some information to share concerning the introduction of the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. On day one, which John doesn't say, now this is day one, but on one day... He gives the account of the appearance of this character called John the Baptist. And what an interesting and compelling character he is. He's this man that is dressed in in rough clothes. And he lives in the wilderness. If anybody knows of John the Baptist, he's that strange man that he's camped out somewhere. You never know where he is. He lives off the grid. He just makes his food out of whatever he can find. He, can lo- he eats bugs and digs honey out of the honeycomb. And he exists. Nobody knows what he's doing out there until he emerges from the wilderness And he comes to fulfill his mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ to be the Lamb of God. And this is what John, I don't want to get you confused between the two Johns because we're talking about John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist. So I'll try and keep that straight for you. As the Gospel writer John now tells on day one the appearance of John the Baptist And he comes in preaching hellfire and brimstone. He doesn't care who he offends. He comes to declare the truth. He confronts the spiritual leaders of Judaism and the Pharisees. And he puts his finger in their face and tells them, the religious people, He tells them, repent! (laughs) Now you would think he would choose somebody else to preach the message of repentance to, but he's telling the religious people, you need to repent! And he warns them with this graphic mental picture of Jesus thinning out the herd, so to speak, and the axe is laid to the root, and everything that doesn't bring forth fruit. And uh, he's, he's really warning them that Jesus is going to be testing them, and they probably are not going to be passing the test. Now this is kind of a composite picture from other Gospels. John doesn't cover all of that in his Gospel. But the introduction of this man, John the Baptist, his ministry is so unique and so distinct, he certainly can't. Captures the attention of the Jewish leadership. And John does tell us that the Jewish leaders set out a little entourage, priests and Levites, and said, go and check out this guy and ask him who he is and where he comes from. So they come to him with this interesting set of questions. And they said, we would like to know if you are Elijah. They had been reading their Old Testament. They believed that Elijah was to come again before the great and notable day of the Lord. Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? And John denied being any of those things. He said, I'm I'm not any of those. I'm not the prophet Moses spoke about. I'm not the prophet prophet that uh, Malachi spoke about. But he said, I am the prophet that Isaiah spoke about. When he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he identified himself as the fulfillment of an Old Testament passage, just not the one they thought. So he wasn't a reincarnation. He wasn't uh, Elijah who, their, their thoughts were that Elijah never died. So he's still got this opportunity to come back and, and uh, minister again. So he says, I'm not him, I'm not him, but I am one who has been appointed to prepare the coming of the Son of God. And on the next day, this is where we begin to see the consecutive days that John is recording these things. Day two, he, the scripture says the next day, John the Baptist actually encounters Jesus and introduces Jesus to the world. Here is his introduction. Quote, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has now formally been introduced by the man who's supposed to introduce him. And God had promised that John, the very person that John would see, upon whom the Spirit would descend. Remember the baptism, the water baptism? Remember the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove? And God had promised John. Now the person upon whom you've seen the Spirit falling, that's the person who is going to baptize people in the Spirit. And John says in the 34th verse, And... I have seen and I have borne witness, this is the Son of God. No question in his mind. John, the gospel writer, says, and the next day. That takes us to day three. In the 35th verse. This time the gospel writer tells about John the Baptist and his two disciples were walking along. And they see Jesus. And what did John the Baptist do? He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, we don't know how many times he used that introductory line. We see two of them. And possibly every time that John had a new audience, ladies and gentlemen, May I present to you the Lamb of God. His mission is to take away the sins of the world, because that was his job. If you're supposed to introduce, get with it. So he did a good job, evidently. Now, by this time, John's disciples became intrigued by this new character, this Lamb of God. This son of God, this one that's going to take away the sins of the world. And they left John and started following Jesus. Now, I don't know that they had planned on uh, connecting with him and join up with his team yet or not. Eventually, they did. You know the story. I don't know that at this point that they were planning on doing that. They just wanted to follow him for a while and check him out. John the Baptist had piqued their interest by pointing at this man every time they come around him and said, Look at the Lamb of God! Well, let's go follow this man for a while. So Jesus notices he's being tailed by these men everywhere he goes. And he turns around and he looks at them and he says, What are you looking for? And they wanted to ask him a question. They had heard John say the Lamb of God. Do you think that they really understood at this point what that meant? Probably not. We understand it. We can read the story. It's been all written and recorded. When John said, Behold the Lamb of God, they had to be wondering what does it mean to be the Lamb of God because they understood concept of Lamb, that they were raised as Jews. Every Jewish household understood the, sla- the slaughtering of the sacrificial lamb. They remembered the lamb that each Hebrew family would have to slaughter in Egypt, painting the blood on the doorposts and the lantels to escape the plague of death. They knew the story of Abraham preparing to sacrifice his son. And at the last minute, there is a ram caught in a the thicket. They understood this was a part of their culture. Everything that they were as Jews involved the lamb. And this this phrase takes away the sins of the world. They understood substitutionary sacrifice. But they, they were curious about this man being the Lamb of God. So Jesus says, what do you want? What are you looking for? What can I do for you? And of all the questions that they could have asked, I can imagine they might have asked, who are you? Like, John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah, are you Jeremiah, are you one of the prophets? And you remember when Jesus talked with Peter, said, who do men say that I am? They're speculating, what what is the scuttlebutt that's going around? And Peter says, well, I hear people talking all the time. Some think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're one of the prophets. And of course, the rumors were getting around, speculation. So obviously, they were doing the same thing with Jesus as they were doing with John the Baptist. But these two disciples, here they are face to face with this man, and Jesus said, what do you want? Well, they could have said, who are you? Where'd you come from? Why are you called the Lamb of God? What does that mean? In what way do you plan to take away the sins of the world? All of these seem like valid questions. You know what they asked him? Where do you live? But see, there's a significance to this. Because in American culture, we have a way of getting acquainted with people. We have to practice our skills here at the church weekly when we have visitors come. And we greet a visitor, and if you don't know how to connect with a visitor, my wife can give a class on it. I never in my life have seen anybody any better at being able to connect with a stranger than she does. She just knows which question to ask next. She gets into their life. She learns their history. They got children. They got grandchildren. What their names are. Who's at the hospital. She she knows it all. Then you got the other side where people freeze. They meet somebody and they say, hi and then there's an odd awkward silence and nobody knows what to say so we we try to connect with people you what do you think would be one of the number one things we ask people whenever we're trying to greet them trying to get so huh where are you from <laughs> where do you work These are things that we use to get acquainted with these people. See, those little things tell us something. We evaluate that. We take that home and then we speculate. You know where they live? They live over there in the rich part of town. They must be wealthy. You know where they work? They work for this corporation that they must really be we, we, we make all these we gather this information stealthily, but then we go home and we figure out who these people are. and that's kind of what they were doing here, because in the Jewish culture, they probably would not have asked the question, "Where do you work?" But what they did care a lot about is where are you' from. You'll see that in the Bible. Where do you live? Where are you from? Now, you've got Jesus of Nazareth. You know why that's like that? Because it was important to people in that culture to know where people were from. You've got Mary of Magdala. And we've shortened that the Magdalene. That's where she was from. It was not her last name. Mary of Magdala. Joseph of Arimathea. Saul of Tarsus. Now, you begin to see this thing emerging. In Scripture, in that culture, how important it was to know where people were from because they evaluated people based on where they came from. So they come up there and they ask him this question. Where do you live? They were going to try and assess if this was somebody worth following or not. Where are you staying? Where do you live? Where do you call home? And Jesus said, come and see. He didn't have a house. And it's a good thing. He didn't stay at home. He moved out. That, that was ensured by the fact that when he announced his ministry, his hometown people turned against him. They were offended when he stood up and read out of the book of Isaiah and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he closed the book and said, that's me. And they said, how dare you? How arrogant, how self-inflating to read Scripture and think you're in there. And they they couldn't, couldn't assimilate that. They couldn't comprehend. So they decided to run him out of town. This kid's gone crazy. This is Jesus this is the son of Joseph. This is the carpenter's son. This is the little snot-nosed kid used to run around here under our feet all the time. And he's getting up reading out of the Bible. He's got delusions, of grandeur. Wasn't going to work to stay at home. So Jesus wasn't living out of his parents' spare bedroom. And he didn't go get a rental house. He didn't go buy a house. He didn't go get a job to support himself He went into the ministry, and he relied on God. And he stayed wherever anybody would give him lodging. And they come up and say, where do you live? And can you imagine what their response would be if Jesus would have said, I don't have a home. Are you inviting me? I don't have a place to crash tonight. But he... He's so clever in how he responds to people because he understands what they're fishing for. He's come and see. So we don't know where he took them. Now, Jesus moved his headquarters to Capernaum for quite a long time. There were people in Capernaum that welcomed him there. He was well-received in that town. We don't know where Jesus took these disciples. But they, they, they spent the afternoon together and when evening came. They had, they had had this conversation through the day that at the conclusion of this, these two disciples said, this is the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. So they must have had the opportunity meeting with him at whoever's house that they went to, where Jesus was staying, temporary quarters, to investigate. They investigate. I invite you to investigate Jesus. You'll not be disappointed. Check him out. He's the real thing. They spent some time with him. They investigated him. They came away They said, this must be the Son of God. And one of those was Andrew. We don't know who the other disciple of John was, but one is identified as Andrew. So when they're done, Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter. And he says to Peter, guess what I found? Peter says, what would you find? He said, I found the Messiah. Now, you understand, they've been looking for the Messiah for 1,500 years. Experts have been looking for the Messiah. And Peter's brother comes home and says, I found him. Who are you kidding? We've been looking for him for centuries. What makes you think you found the Messiah? And his story was so compelling, he brought Peter. And Peter became a believer. And on day four, John... The gospel writer devotes his story to the gathering of more disciples to follow Jesus. So Andrew brings Peter. Jesus finds Philip, and he says, follow me. Philip gladly follows him. And says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Once again, they are trying to give them a little uh, a polish. Bethsaida was a pretty good town to be from, so you got some quality men from Bethsaida. It was important where they were from. Philip then, he goes and finds Nathanael, and he says to Nathanael, we found the Messiah, one of the, the one that the prophets wrote about, and he is, here's where he made a mistake, he is Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son, and the first thing that Nathanael says is, nobody from Nazareth can be a Messiah. That's just not where Messiahs come from they might come from Jerusalem, holy city, but nothing good, is what he says, comes from Nazareth. This cannot be. Once again, the significance of where you're from and the origins of Jesus. Defied human logic and assumptions about where you might be from. So Jesus comes face to face with Nathanael. As Philip comes and brings Nathanael to Jesus. And the, and the first person to say anything as they are approaching is Jesus sees Nathanael coming. Ah, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, do we know each other? Have we met? And Jesus said, well, not officially, but I saw you when you were sitting under that tree where were you watching me sitting under a tree? Now, a lot of people think this was word of knowledge. Uh, they don't really necessarily believe that Jesus was in the immediate area seeing Nathanael, but Jesus knew. And it struck Nathanael in such a powerful way that when Jesus said that, he said, now I believe. I believe you are the Messiah. Anybody who knows something like that, you he says, Rabbi, teacher, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And this is the point where Jesus says something very, very significant that in the entire first chapter of John, we very rarely hear anything about. And some of you may have even forgotten it's in the first chapter. But it's at the very end of the chapter when we've been chock full of all this other good, powerful theological stuff that John has fed us in these verses the incarnation and the call of Jesus and the collecting, uh, the assembling of his, of his uh, uh, team and all these things. Here at the end, we get probably one of the most important things in the entire chapter. Nathaniel says, I, I believe you're the king. I believe you're the son of God. And Jesus says, you believe because I saw you under a fig tree. <laughs> this seems kind of flimsy. But he was correct. And then he says, you will see greater things than that. Greater things than just seeing me with the power to know where you are and what you were thinking and what you were doing. He said, you're going to see some real stuff. Nathaniel, you hang around me. You haven't seen anything yet. Verily, verily, anytime you see that in Scripture, you want to put on your listening ears. Truly, truly, this, this is a double emphasis. It's like Jesus is saying, now, if you were not paying attention before, pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is of prime importance. Very, truly, verily, verily. I tell you, you will see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And do you think that Nathanael had a clue what that meant? So we're going to try and, and, and take this back to the application. Why did Jesus say that? And why is that going to be more important than what Nathanael had already seen? Now the point that John makes, the most important point perhaps that John makes in his first chapter can be summarized simply as this, is Jesus Christ is our connection to God. And I read you this passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul had, had taken that concept of the connection to God through Jesus Christ and used the term reconciliation. We sing that old Christmas Carol, that hymn—I believe it's "Hark the Herald angel Sing." Oh, in that, it says, "God and sinner reconciled." Remember that—that's what it's talking about. In that, in that little hymn, God and sinner reconciled. There is something so huge, so powerful about this whole thing. That's what Paul was talking about. We were at odds with God. We're told in the Bible that He He died for us while we were still enemies. Can you get a hold of that? How many of you have a friend that would say to you, I I love you so much, I would take a bullet for you. I doubt that many of you have that kind of friend. Now when you get into a family relationship, you're going to find that more often. You're going to find a parent that will give their life to spare the life of their child. They'll jump in front of a car to rescue their child and give their own life. They'll do anything. They'll stand before their child and a vicious attacker. You get this. But but even as we might find that, we might find that in earthly relationships, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, we were at odds with God. We had incurred His anger. We had deserved nothing but judgment. Jesus Christ died for us. And Paul calls that the reconciliation. How are we going to bring man to relationship with God when we are on God's bad side. How are we going to bridge the gap? God's plan was, I will send my son and he will become the connection point between fallen man and the holy God. Jesus said, you're going to see heaven opened and angels of God will descend, walk up and down on this the stairway. Christ's response is very interesting because he was alluding to a couple of things. First of all, he was alluding to ancestry and he was alluding to the fulfillment of an Old Testament story, a type and a shadow that would have a New Testament reality. And that takes us back to the story of Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, Abraham the father of the faith of the Jews and the Gentiles alike, but even more, Jacob was the father of sons that became the heads of 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben, Gad, Joseph, Judah, Zebulun, all of these boys that he had named, would eventually become the fountainhead of the twelve tribes of Israel. And Jacob had a brother, Esau. They fought like you would expect brothers to fight from time to time. Jacob became a rather sneaky, conniving sort. Never out-and-out out evil, just sly. There was a time when Jacob was the cook. Esau was the outdoor man. We don't have any indication that Jacob was quite cut from the same bolt of cloth as Esau. Esau is the hunter, the, uh, the rough Hairy, red, rugged outdoorsman. He comes home from a hunting expedition with nothing to show for his day in the woods. And when he walks in, Jacob has a delicious meal prepared. A pot of stew going that just smells so good. And Esau says, I am so hungry. I'm so hungry. Uh, When's the stew going to be ready? Jacob says, I didn't make it for you. Why don't you eat your deer or your rabbits or your squirrels? Taunting him. He says, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. You're not going to share. you got a whole pot full. You're not going to share with me. I've been out hunting all day long. And Jacob, being the sly, crafty, conniving, scheming kind of a guy he was, sees an opportunity. Just like... Brothers and sisters do oftentimes. I think I can make a deal here and come out on top. I have something he wants. How hungry are you? What would you trade for a bowl of stew? I don't know what Esau offered, but nothing was good enough. Not giving it up for dad's pocket knife. Mm -mm. Not good enough. Esau, Esau says, What do you want? How about you trade me your birthright? And for whatever negotiations they went through, Jacob won the negotiation. Esau was so consumed by his hunger that his brain quit working first. Whatever the order of priorities is in the organs in the body. Blood quit flowing to his brain due to his hunger. And he gives away his birthright for a bowl of soup. And when he's done, he he thinks he made the wrong decision. That's Jacob. This is the same Jacob that sneaks up on his brother again again fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me and when the father is going to give the blessing he wants to bless esau the oldest and esau as i said he's he's a rough hairy individual distinct from the more refined jacob but he's going blind. The father's going blind. Isaac's going blind. And he says, where's my sons? Where's, where's Esau? I want to lay my hands on Esau and give him the blessing. And Jacob runs and gets an old animal skin and puts it on himself and goes over. And he says, you sound like Jacob. Let me feel you. And reaches out and touches that old, that old rasty animal skin. And, and he says, well, it smells like Esau. Feels like Esau must be Esau. That Esau must have been one rough dude. So he proceeds with the blessing. When Esau comes in and sees that Jacob stole his birthright, now he steals his blessing. He said, "I've had enough of this guy. I'm out of here. I don't want anything else to do with my brother. There'll be nothing left in my life." Jacob and his brother are on the outs. Jacob decides he'll leave. He goes out to this place in the wilderness didn't take much with him. The Bible says he, he found a rock, and he situated it there for a pillow, and he laid down and went to sleep. I have great admiration for this man. Just with that bit of information, I have been in on Royal Ranger campouts. I have been in situations where I didn't have a decent pillow. I can't sleep without my pillow. I'm sorry, people. I've got to have my pillow. I've tried putting the arm up. It doesn't, the arm goes to sleep and turns into something alien on my body. It doesn't work. I've tried. You just wad up some of your clothes and put them there. It doesn't work. You can't get a good night's rest. This guy is out there in the middle of the wilderness, he finds a rock. He lays his head on a rock, and he goes to sleep. And he starts having this fa- fantastic dream. He sees the heavens opened up. And this ladder or this staircase, whichever version you might be reading, it's just this this extension coming down from heaven and he sees these angels going up and down. And when he wakes up from this dream, he says, surely God must be in this place. So he takes that rock, his pillow, and he sets it in a very special place and he makes it a memorial and he says, I will call this place Bethel, the house of God. Now, it wasn't a significant place to anybody else but Jacob. It wasn't like everybody else who came to this rock suddenly felt the presence of God. It was just special to Jacob. I'll call this place the house of God. I I sensed God when I was here. It was his experience. It was a limited experience. It was limited by an era that had not yet seen the Messiah make his appearance. And the best that Jacob could do with his experience was just to put a monument there and give it a descriptive name, call it a place where God dwells. It had its limitations, but for Jacob it served him well because later on in life, after he had had his sons and his sons had wives and, and he, he had a daughter that, that the whole family had, had, had been content to live too close to the Gentile, the enemy. The Gentiles, and they had begun to, to uh, uh, interact with them. And he had a daughter, Dinah, and says, I want to go out and see how the Gentile women, how they do their crafts, and maybe we can learn something from them. And she goes to town, and she begins to, to uh, uh, absorb how they do things. She wants to bring that back into their culture, which we've got to avoid being attracted by the way the world does things. You can bring back stuff that doesn't belong in your life, you see? Always wanting to take our cue from the world. Here's the latest thing, the way the world is doing it, and maybe the church will jump on board and adopt that for the church. What's wrong? What's wrong with the church setting the standard and the world following them? While she's out and about, there's some some locals that see she's a fine-looking young maiden and. Somebody captures her and rapes her and sends her home. Then he falls in love with her and says, I've got to to have that woman for my wife. And Jacob's sons are livid that this has happened. So they devise this plan where they sneak into this city where this crime has occurred. And they slaughter all the males in the city. Jacob learns what his sons have done. When you find out your son has done something wrong, it's, it can be very devastating. When, when you wake up and find your sons have gone to town and slaughtered every male, you've got a problem with your sons. What have you done? We can no longer live here. We've got to pack up and move. So he packs up the whole family says, I only know one place to go. It's called Bethel. It's called the house of God. It's the place where I find God's presence. So he moves his family to Bethel. And there, he says, we're going to make an adjustment in this family from now on. He tells his family, you get rid of everything that is idolatrous. All the accoutrements, all the charms, all the the everything that has to do with idolatry, you get rid of it. And I'm going to go bury it. And then we're going to build an altar to God because... Jacob understood altars. See, Abraham was a nomad. He traveled around. He didn't have a home. And they they never did put down any roots. They just kept moving. But one, his home may be temporary. but one thing that Abraham had consistently is no matter where they went, they had an altar. Listen, mister, sister. There's one thing that ought to be consistent in your life is there might be a lot of transitory things in your life. There might be a lot of temporary things in your life. You might have to change jobs a number of times in your life. It happens. You might have to move a lot of times. My wife and I have moved so many times, I forget how many times we've moved. For years, there were boxes we never unpacked as we moved from place to place. It was like Christmas when we finally got. To where we've got unpack these things that have been there for 10, 12, 15 years. Just keep them packed. We'll be moving soon. One thing ought to be consistent. is no matter where you work, no matter where you live, no matter what else changes in your life, you ought to have an altar to God. You ought to have a relationship with God. You ought to know how to worship God in all times. You ought to be able to give to Him what is rightfully His. That should be consistent. In your life, no matter what else changes. Jacob says, let's bury the junk. Let's get it out of the family. Let's build an altar. And my family is coming back to God. He made his reconnection at Bethel. Now, when Jesus replied to Nathanael and he said... uh, you're going to see the heavens opened up and you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was a foreshadowing of something much greater. It was not a one-time thing like like Jacob's experience. It was not limited to the the single person in a specific location. What Christ came to do in the same sense of what Jacob did experience this presence of God Jesus Christ came to do on an ongoing permanent basis it wasn't just a one-time experience in the wilderness where he said to Nathaniel now you be watching real careful because if you blink you'll miss it no that wasn't what he was talking about he said you know what Nathaniel I'm going to open up the heavens That's what Jesus came to do. He came to open up something that had not been opened up in all the history of mankind. They had had little showers of blessings. They had had little moments of experiencing the presence of God. But Jesus said, I came to open up the heavens. And from this point on, all people are going to experience the presence of God. It won't be at Bethel. It won't be next to a rock, but it will be everywhere because God is not limited to a house. You see, Solomon wanted to build a temple for God. But the question posed by the prophet was, you're going to build a temple for me, The God said through the prophet, you're going to build a temple for me. The Lord doesn't dwell in the temple made by the hands of man. He's everywhere. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of the Thereof, Heaven is His throne. Earth is His footstool. You can't put Him in a house. You can't put Him in a box. He's everywhere. In Him, we move, we live, we have our being. He is everywhere. Jesus said, I came to expand this. Heaven will be opened up. People who are searching for that connection with God. They might believe there is a God. But they keep wondering, how do I connect with this God I believe in? Does he care for me? Does he know what I'm going through? Will he hear me if I cry out to him? Is he moved when he sees me in pain? How do I reach this God? Do my prayers reach the throne? And Jesus said, through me, you can connect with God. No man comes to the Father except through me. The second thing about this is not only Jesus opening up what had never been opened to that extent before, but the second thing is, is he established this two-way thing. You see, in in this provision... We understand you can talk to God, but in turn, God can talk to you. Angels are just the messengers. They're just the metaphor for the two-way communication. That's all that means. Things go up to heaven and things come down from heaven. You can send your prayers up, but God can send the answers down. You can send your worship up, but God can send the blessings down. It's two-way. It's not like the people who are worshiping an idol. not like the people who are making a sacrifice to a mountain to an idol of stone, to an idol of wood, that they come and they give their sacrifice, but the idol is mute. They don't even know if that idol can hear them. It's not like the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament where they were challenged by Elijah, call on your gods and let's see who has a real God. They screamed. They cut themselves. They cried out for their God. They burned their sacrifice, but their God did not speak to them. But Elijah came and he spoke to God and God spoke back because this is a two way thing. You can have a relationship with God where not only can you talk to God, but you can thoroughly expect God to talk to you unlike the people who are stuck on worshiping trees or mountains or stars or planets or looking to the zodiac for their guidance you've got this relationship with God because Jesus opened up the way he'll hear your hearts cry he'll answer because Jesus opened up the way there is no other way to God He is the door. He is our access. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. You won't find God through a thousand religions in this world. Jesus claimed exclusivity. And if you, like Nathaniel, have come to embrace Jesus Christ, you will find the heavens opened up. And you will find this two-way connection with God. You can have this. But it's all through Jesus. He is our connection to God the Father. Would you bow your heads?